If you're good at something, never do it for free. You're my older brother, and I love you. But don't ever take sides with anyone against the family again. I bought you. <laughs> Welcome back. We are the Podfellas. Our show provides film and TV reviews from two guys that make, watch, and love movies. I'm Myron, and joining me each week is Will. Hi, everybody. I'm always waiting to see what you're going to say. And uh, a couple of times you disappointed me. Today you didn't. Thank I'm sorry. <laughs> I, thank you. Yeah, I you, will improve. Every episode we, we do, you're going to have to come on and be like, okay, today I'm going to do this when I say hello. You can't be, just yeah. wing it. Because sometimes okay, it's, I won't. It's, sometimes well, it's not good. True. Yes. True. But anyway. I, I, I mean, no, I'm, I'm, I won't always be a winner. So I'm just saying. That's true. But you could be if you prepared. Just saying. Fine, Myron. Fine. <laughs> Today we'll be reviewing the films Mank and Let Them All Talk. And then right after, we'll be going into our Soderbergh versus Fincher tournament bracket, where we will pick four Ooh. movies from each director and pit the films against each other round by round. And Crazy. joining us today for our rundown, as well as for our tournament bracket, is fellow friend and collaborator, John Park. Woo, Thanks woo, for being woo, on the show. Woo. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's an honor <laughs> to be here, actually. Yeah. yeah. So, so John has been an avid listener, and he's been passive-aggressively saying, when can I come on? When can I come on? <laughs> But we're happy to have him because Heck yeah. he loves movies and he has some strong opinions about those movies. So I think we're going to have some good conversation today. I'm excited. Love it. Heck yeah, yeah John. Welcome. I'm excited. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. It's, it's, I feel like you guys are, uh, I, I feel very honored because uh, you guys are like like a million. I feel like you guys have a million subscribers or listeners yeah. and you guys are like Joe Rogan showed him. So yeah. It's Not like, sure it's about like the surreal. We're, 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 we're like a million subscribers plus or minus a million. <laughs> kind of right on there on your way on your way <laughs> yeah but yeah yeah all right cool well first things first before we get to the reviews we're going to start with a rundown on the latest in entertainment news this story is kind of not new um and we talked about it in our last episode but hbo max and warner brothers dropped a bomb and said that their entire 2021 film slate is going to go straight to streaming on hbo max and it kind of left people wondering, what the hell are they doing? How are the actors going to get paid if uh, they get like back-end points? Uh, how are people reacting to this? Do the directors even know? Well, Nolan had a few choice words for uh, Warner Brothers. And uh, to paraphrase, he said, how is the best movie studio out there joining forces with the worst streaming service? It's like, ouch. Mm. And Shots fired. Yeah, shots fired. Now, this didn't affect his movies because Tenet came out in 2020, right? So kind of like he's kind of buttoned in there, making these comments when he's not really being affected. So I want to ask you guys, right. is Nolan, does he have a right to be upset? And do you agree or disagree with him? Do we have the numbers, latest numbers of Tenet in theaters? Okay, so the movie cost, I believe, about $200 million to make. And here are the right. numbers. They did $57 million domestic. 303 million international for a worldwide cum of 361 million. Now that's pretty good. Um, not bad. Yeah, but, but it's, it's not the numbers that they usually hit. Yes. Yeah. That's, it's that's not, a lot. That's way below, I think. Yeah. It's like maybe 40% of what he would usually make. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's hard to tell if this movie actually turned a profit. You can't be mad at the numbers. Like the numbers are showing you exactly what's going on. When you can't go and fill up the theaters, it's going to hit hard, you know? I mean, I'm not an accountant. I don't know numbers. I don't know why they're doing this. 
off the right. top of my head, it doesn't sound like it would make sense. All I know is that HBO Max was struggling. And when he calls it the worst streaming service, I'd have to kind of agree with him. They still don't have 4K. Uh, they're going to be... They're going to have 4K once Wonder Woman comes out, which means that mm-hmm. probably all of their movies that are coming out next year will be in 4K. But they're late to the party. No one is exactly sure how HBO Max is different than HBO Go and HBO Now. I, I don't even know. And so it's an inter- interesting move on their part. And I don't know how taking a hit uh, on the theater side uh, to help their ailing streaming service, how that would help them. But I'm sure it makes sense to some accountant somewhere. What do you think, John? I agree with you, Myron. I think, I mean, I, I didn't even know that HBO Max was even its own streaming service. I thought it was like a add-on to HBO. And um, so, yeah, other than the DC events um, that marketed HBO Max, I that was like the first time I heard about HBO Max. So hmm. um, I think they needed hmm. to push something, like make make big noise in that sector so yeah we'll see what happens um from what i hear there are going to be lawsuits coming uh from directors and producers that did not know that warner brothers was doing this they heard when it was announced to the press which is kind of bad and uh who knows what they're gonna do i know that when they announced wonder woman is going to hbo max um apparently the director patty jenkins and the lead actress gal gadot both got bonuses so I don't know if they're going to be doing that with the other large films. Who knows? But uh, Warner Brothers did fire back and they said, well, the reason we're doing this is because of the performance like movies such as Tenet. And you're just like, ooh. No, there's, there's that. Yeah, <laughs> there's I, that I, I don't know if they're going to work together again. Uh, we'll see what happens. Yeah. 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 But honestly, I feel like um, Nolan has kind of maybe lost touch with what it is to be an independent filmmaker. Because uh, this isn't the first time he has kind of lashed out against streaming services. He did so multiple times, saying that movies need to be seen in in theaters, right? But this is also a guy that spent $6,000 to make his very first feature on 16mm black and white film and had to cut a ton of corners just to get that uh, movie made. Streaming services give filmmakers a chance to get their work seen and bought. And I feel like he's losing sight of that. What do you guys think? I mean, I I think I, I look at what Nolan's saying and I think, you know... This reminds me of like the whole argument with Spielberg saying, oh, how could you go digital? You know, film's the only way, film's the only thing to really experience what it means to watch a movie, right? But as time pa- passes by, everything's going digital. Yeah. Like we're, we're, we're okay with it. We've accepted it, you know? Yeah. It's funny is yeah. what Spiel- Spielberg's best friends, Scorsese and Lucas, right? They're yeah. fully digital now, you know? Yeah, exactly. So, I so mean, yeah, time will only I, tell. I feel like it's a, it's different. It's like streaming service versus the studios. I think he's, um, I agree. Maybe this is, he's not fully believing what he, he says himself. But mm-hmm. I think if he's talking about the streaming services, yeah, like I think he's not fully embracing it. Um, and maybe he's truly afraid of that. But if he's talking about the studios, I think maybe what he's saying is the studios buying into the streaming service as a bigger platform to make money for themselves. Um, and I think that might mm-hmm. be a bigger topic. Um, for that's him. an interesting point. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's always going to be the case, actually, with the studios. I think Nolan is, by and large, an artist and first and foremost, a director and a man who knows, like, uh, the appreciation of what film should be, a movie should be watched on. Mm-hmm. But for studios, it's like, no, we're losing money. We, we need yeah. to find a different way. Yeah. We need to find a different for sure. avenue. For sure. I'm interested to, to see here what, like, other fi- top directors right now are saying because I feel like Nolan. Um, I mean, he's definitely one of the the biggest ones right now. And the fact that they're publicizing what he said 
I think he he's also on the tail end of his contract, isn't it? Isn't he with um, Warner Brothers? I believe so. Mm-hmm. He's made Maybe. every feature with Warner Brothers um, except for Memento. Right. Maybe so, he's like positioning like a like an athlete um, on a on a contract. On a contract. Season, uh, right, yeah. trying to position himself to. Maybe a free agent. He's pulling <laughs> yeah. a James Harden. He, he wants out <laughs> for sure. Yeah, it's funny. All right, thanks for joining us, John. He's going to come back later when we go into our Soderbergh versus Fincher tournament bracket. That was a look at the rundown. Now, a look at future episodes. Next week, Will and I will be reviewing the film Songbird as well as the film The Sound of Metal. Any thoughts, comments, suggestions, or reviews of content? Drop us a line at the podfellaspodcast at gmail.com. And please tell your friends about us. Our podcast can be found on the Apple Podcast app, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, as well as Spotify. Meg, it's Orson Welles. Of course it is. I think it's time we talk. What is it the writer says? Tell the story you know. Make yourself to home, Mr. Mankowitz, or shall I call you Herman? Please, call me Mank. 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 This is Herman Mankowitz, but we're to call him Mank. Mankowitz. Herman Mankowitz. New York playwright and drama critic. Turned humble screenwriter, Mr. Hurst. This is a business where the buyer gets nothing for his money but a memory. What he bought still belongs to the man who sold it. That's the real magic of the movies. Thunder, light, blood, fire, religion. Help! Someone save me! All in one film. That's director proof. That's why I always want Mank around. I hear you're hunting dangerous game. God bless William Randolph Hearst. Ready and willing to hunt the great white whale? Just call me Ahab. Do come in. At this rate, you will never finish. You said 90 days. Well, said 60. I'm doing the best I can. I've put up with your suicidal drinking, your compulsive gambling, your silly platonic affairs. You owe me, Herman. Who do you think you are? You're nothing but a court jester. What I want to know is what you think of it. It's a bit of a jumble, the collection of fragments that leap around in time like Mexican jumping beans. Welcome to my mind, old sock. Him, I get. But what did Marion ever do to deserve it's this? It's not her. Not all characters are headliners. Some are secondary. You pick a fight with Willie. You are finished. Mayor can't save you. Nobody can. Especially the boy genius from New York. I removed any distraction, eliminated every excuse. Your family, your cronies, liquor. I gave you a second chance. You cannot capture a man's entire life in two hours. All you can hope is to leave the impression of one. Why Hurst? Outside his own blonde Betty Boop, you're always his favorite dinner partner. Are you familiar with the parable of the organ grinder's monkey? <laughs> and now onto a review of the film Mank, directed by David Fincher. It is about Herman Mankiewicz. I believe I'm saying that right. Mankiewicz. Anyway, he's Jewish. Mankiewicz. Get it right, Myron. My apologies. <laughs> 1930s Hollywood is reevaluated through the eyes of scathing social critic and alcoholic screenwriter Herman J. Mankiewicz as he races to finish the screenplay of Citizen Kane. All right. So uh, we both watched this film on Netflix. And uh, 
just from our brief discussion, I think uh, our opinions on this film are very, very, very similar. Yes. One thing I noticed yes. about this movie, the production design and costume design are were top-notch. Oh, my gosh, As yes. are the technical aspects of this film. Mm-hmm. And I mean... This is pretty much the same for every Fincher movie. It's like going to film school, right? There's not a frame where something is out of place. Everything is so meticulously put, and every actor's performance is so perfect, right? No one blocks out sitting around a table better than Fincher, right? It's like his dinner table scenes feel like action movies and how perfectly they're cutting and, and just how great the performances are and how just everything is just where it should be. A little too um, perfect. Just, well, we'll get to that later, though. Yeah. But I just felt a little too little too perfect for a black and white film, especially when he's trying to bring that nostalgia back. So, yeah. But yeah. I do agree on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the film itself is a technical achievement. It was shot on an AK black and white digital camera. <laughs> <That's> crazy. <laughs> which was which was custom made for this film. Yeah. Um, so the end product actually gave me mixed results. Huge. Some of the shots yeah. looked phenomenal, but then it's like, okay, we're in 1930s Hollywood. Is it supposed to look this good? Right? Exactly. Um, exactly. I literally right. was watching you know, these shots and I'm like thinking, okay, certain shots where I was like, wow, I, I, from all the classics that I've watched uh, in my years, there's parts where it's like, ah, spot on. And then other times I'm like, yeah. why does this feel so processed? So, yeah. Yeah. I will say, though, that the movie was lit, shot, and edited beautifully, which just goes back to what we were talking about. Fincher Mm -hmm. doesn't make imperfect films. And so the technical aspect, once again, shines through in this movie. Mm. Um, The performances were great. As usual, Gary Oldman, who I believe is your favorite actor. Amazing. Yes. The guy's a chameleon. He's fantastic, especially in that dining room scene where he shows up drunk and goes <laughs> on like a five-minute tirade in a drunken rage, insulting the host of the dinner. Oh, <laughs> it man. was just so uncomfortable, but he was so good in that. And when I was talking earlier about no one can block out a, a, a dinner scene or a people sitting around the table scene like Fincher, in this movie, that was what I was referring to. Um, so good. Everyone else was great as well. Uh, I mean, Lily Collins, great. Amanda Seyfried, wonderful. Um, all of the side performances were all really, really good. But it's like that in every Fincher movie, I think Oldman really, it's his vehicle. And everyone kind of is positioned around him to let him shine. And I was totally okay with that. I mean, this Gary Oldman is just so versatile. And I just love the way how he really hones in on a character. And it's just like you just instantly believe him with, with, with who he plays. So I loved it. Mm-hmm. So good. And man, uh, how about Amanda Seyfried with yeah. just her... Co- man, she looks like she should have been born in the 1930s. Yeah. She looked oh my so gosh. of the era. So the era. much. Anything else that you liked about the film? When it came to the editing, I will say it was so nice to see the traditional glamour Hollywood transitions, you know, where you would see where Mank... There was a scene where Mank, he's... Um, I think he's drunk, but then you'll see time kind of like rotating around him it's like superimposed basically those classic scenes and also when they transition it's not so much a crossfade but it's actually like the lights fade out so if you look at it it's not just one all screen going to black the actual lights all fade out and i'm like oh my gosh they actually he's, he took note of that so he is meticulous i'm glad that fincher took note of that it was a great way to make those transitions as well so yeah so it's, it was more than like a it was more than a fade to black digitally that you would put it and put in post it he literally took the lights and yep. faded them down and just right? faded them out and you can kind of see where the end point of where the black like where the darkness is going basically so mm-hmm. that was just so good just to kind of bring that back i love that 
Right. So yeah. Right. All right. And now we're going to talk about maybe some of the things that we didn't like so much in the movie. And it's a little weird that in a movie like this, and we talk about how Fincher's movies are so technically precise, mm-hmm. but that kind of took us out of what this movie, what we felt like it was supposed to be, I, I would say. So for me, the big thing is this movie is a little lost between two worlds. Yeah. Like I said, it was shot on an advanced digital camera, but it was made to look like it was shot in the 1930s and 40s. So yep. basically, you're taking the best tech and trying to make it look like the worst tech. So that didn't work for me completely. And I think you had some problems with this. I mean, in certain shots, it looked like a clean digital black and white image. And then there are other shots where you, they just layered that grain on there and it looked very much of the 30s and 40s. But it, they're the, it kept going back and forth. I felt like you know it needed to look a lot more consistent. It was a big it hit or miss. It took me out of the movie a little bit. Yes, yeah. it was a big hit or miss at times. And I, I, I don't know really understand. I don't really understand really why they shot an AK, honestly. You have to, they're going to render it down. So... I don't know if he was experimenting really or, or seeing if it's possible because in like I said, like, like, like we've w- witnessed in certain shots, it does work. But why it doesn't work in certain other shots where you can totally tell it's digitally processed, that was something I was trying to figure out. You know, so I don't know. It, it just it was a hit or miss. So it just was very mm-hmm. much a conundrum for me. How did you feel about the camera moves? Um, I mean, do you, did you think like it was shot did you feel like it was shot authentically and that it looked like a 1930s and 40s film? Yes and no. Or did the camera yeah. the camera angles look like they were very much up to date, right? Well, so here's the thing. like It didn't give me the classic glamour Hollywood type of vibe. Because glamour, glamour uh, Hollywood cinematography, they use medium long and medium shots that focus on gestures and facial expressions a lot in, in when you look at old film, older films. But it also... So it had that but it featured more Fincher's meticulous tracking shots and medium to wide angle shots those shots that you just like that that are modernized so you look at that and go uh i don't i don't too perfect it's too it's too yeah it's too nice it's too like loosen up a little bit i wish Fincher just realized like you're shooting an old film like an old school film like you have to let it kind of degrade a little bit you have to kind of just break away from your tradition and just let it be the essence of what you're trying to achieve you know so yeah i remember there was one long walk and talk i think maybe in the last 30 minutes of the movie where uh mank is walking Mm -hmm. um you know down the down a hallway with somebody else Mm -hmm. and it was like the most perfect yeah non-shaky camera shot where everything where you know everything was perfectly in focus and it just was like okay this is a little bit too perfect for a movie like this this is not that's not 1930s that's not 1940s if you ever watch films like the apartment or uh uh if you ever watch like like um some like it hot like that's a billy wilder film uh and any you know if you even watch like even 60s films like giants with james dean and 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 liz taylor like the movement of the dolly shots and everything there's a bit of like a looseness and more humanistic touch to it you know whereas i knew like when you were saying that the end part of them of mink walking i'm just like you put this on a crane bro you put this on a robotic arm and really just man it just yeah don't do that That, don't it doesn't make sense it doesn't make sense to do that right now in this kind of shot you can you can fincherize a movie and just make it so technically of the 2020s you know yes what did you think about the sound the the dialogue oh yeah yeah that's something that we should talk about um i liked it so there was like a hollowness to the to the vocals. It's mono, yeah, it didn't sound yeah. very warm. Yeah, yeah, and uh, that's what you—that's the type of tonal quality you would expect to hear 
from older films. So that will, for me was consistent across the board, and it kind of helped me put it put me within the time that the movie took place. So I, I liked it. What did you think? I honestly have not. I can't even recall a film that had that kind of echoey, you know, mono uh, sound quality. Really, like to me, it it sounded like I was watching a film, but it was being played through a radio. You know what I mean? It, it kind of just didn't really connect with me because I, I, I it's it, normally when it comes to old films like that, there's it, it's still pretty clean. I, I don't know. It just threw me off. It didn't. It, I don't know if that was accurate for me. Really, at least from my experiences mm-hmm. of all of all the old classic films that I've watched. So, yeah, mm-hmm. that that threw me off. I, I wasn't a big fan of it. It kind of distracted me a little bit. So, the other thing I was kind of thinking about is what is the plot of this movie. <laughs> I am still not sure if there is one. Um, I mean, essentially speaking, the movie is about the writing of Citizen Kane. Um, and so our main character, Mank, has like a broken leg. They don't really specify what that, what type of injury it, uh, it is. But he's laying in bed and he's writing Citizen Kane. And then you get flashbacks uh, into his life that kind of show the events that led him to uh, the hospital bed, number one. And then secondly, um, it kind of gives his motivation for maybe featuring some true-to-life characters within the screenplay. Now, the flashbacks are placed in the worst spots, meaning, first off, we're taught don't use flashbacks. Try not to, like, ever. But if you're going to have to do it, please don't do it right when you're giving their watcher the information that they need for things to make sense. Mm -hmm. So it'll be like, Mank is in bed, he talks about something, and the next scene is a flashback explaining that one thing. Mm. So it's like they're giving you the flashback right at the moment where you're asking the question, wait, what's going on here? And it felt very clumsy to me. Um, the flashbacks to me just kind of didn't work because it didn't really lead anywhere. I mean, the last 40, 45 minutes of the movie, he, uh, there was no question. It wasn't like there wasn't anything that was in doubt. He actually finished the screenplay with the, with 30 to 40 minutes left, right? And um, as a result of that, it's like, okay, the screenplay is done. Is the movie going to end? No. Keeps going. Keeps going. <laughs> Still more flashbacks. And then the movie just ends. So I'm still not sure what I saw, even though it was in entertaining and enjoyable. Um, and it took me a couple of, of uh, sittings to watch it. What about you? So when you watch Citizen Kane, Citizen Kane, it starts at the end. And and it starts where um, Kane is basically uh, is on his deathbed, right? And he whispers the word Rosebud. When that happens, then you base, then it goes to a flashback. And goes through basically his younger self, his his upbringing, all the way up to then starting, you know, where it first started, ending where it first started, basically. And that to me was like a proper flashback. Whereas when they did it with this, it was like, here's the present time. Here's what's going on. Let me explain why it's like this. And you go to flashback. And you're just like, okay. And then they come back to present time again talking 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 about a different situation and saying oh what's the relationship between these two characters then they go flashback again it kept going back and forth back and forth to where it was like jarring and and i was really just distracted the the more than anything um and it just lost the momentum um it was really hard to inve- get invested with the narrative and characters. The, re- the, the, the main thing I got from this film watching it entirely all the way through was, you know, this is really like a bio 
a, a biopic style narrative really it's just kind of like you're just looking at at manx's kind of redemption from his uh failures as as a screenwriter trying to you know because of his alcoholism and everything else like orson welles gives him like a second chance you know and saying i want you to write this script right they have a deal but after that it's like okay who is herman wankowitz and that's what we kind of go through that journey and then the whole you know the whole underlying uh foundation really is oh because he's writing his own like the one script that wins him an oscar is citizen kane you know what I mean? So I feel like the Citizen Kane thing was just kind of, kind of like the hook, but really everything else is just really about Herman. But here's the thing, though: this is a biopic about a life that really—I I mean, I'll be honest—probably didn't deserve a movie to be made out of it. Yeah, um, right. Well, at least in this fashion, um, I'm not quite sure what this is. If it's like a salute to uh, old Hollywood, mm. or if it was just a screenwriting exercise. Um, it was a fun movie um, in that it was each scene was well crafted and entertaining but at the end it left me just wondering what this was about i did read so. an article and i thought one critic made a great uh, comment that this film felt more like an observation for film schools <laughs> to watch yeah it really just was an observation film like something to study uh in, in mm -hmm. the ways of why you know certain choices were made and and how certain uh looks were done for whatever purpose and whatnot yeah, yeah it literally was like more of an observational film all right final review will what do you give this movie uh final review uh, i wanted to give it 3.5 but i just you know it, it just honestly it, it really threw me in for a loop and so i i give it three stars great performance from gary oldman i love gary oldman i appreciate the hard work that you put in trying to bring back classic hollywood but it's just it ultimately fell short. It just mm. fell short in too many places to where I just like was like, I can't, I can't. <laughs> okay. What about you? Got it. I gave it three out of five stars as well. Mm. It's a technical achievement and it's a, still a compelling watch, albeit a confusing one. The performances are amazing and so is the craft put into each scene. But like I said earlier, this movie is lost between two worlds and I don't think it really ever finds its footing. However, the film geek, the film geek in me still really appreciated it, though. So yeah, it was a good observation. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right, that was our in-depth review of the film Mank. We will take a short break and come back with a review of the film. Let them all talk. Stay tuned. Alice has a manuscript that's due really soon. Everyone at the agency is getting a bit nervous. I mean, I haven't seen a manuscript. Have you seen the manuscript? I have not seen a manuscript. For years now, she's been hinting that she's revisiting one of her characters, so I've booked her on the Queen Mary 2 with her two friends and her nephew. Here's to picking up the conversation where we left off, and here's to reconnecting the gang of three who we used to be. <laughs> Did you always talk like that? I'm going to start work on my manuscript. Swim at three, dinner at seven, back to work, or bed, or both. I'll probably work in bed. I kind of feel like I'm spending time with three almost like... Dinosaurs. No. You believe Alice and her book determined your whole life? The consequences on my life of her actions were unacceptable. Want to go have a drink later? No, I can't. I just don't know who you are anymore. Does anybody trust you? We really lost each other. <laughs> 
How's work going? Ah, oh, I've hit a wall. Well, maybe you should Some... take a breather. Sometimes the sources that a writer uses are very close to home. There is a lot of excitement. Is there anything you might be able to share with us? Not really, not at this point, no. Whatever character I write about is essentially about me. That's a little pompous. Who is the real you? Where's Tyler? He has a date, an older woman. <laughs> How much older? Like in her 80s? <laughs> All right, those were the trailers for next week's films. And uh, we are back onto part two of our episode with a review of the film, Let Them All Talk, directed by Steven Soderbergh and starring Meryl Streep. It's about a famous author, played by Streep, who goes on a cruise trip with her friends, played by Diane Wiest and Candace Bergen, and nephew, played by Lucas Hedges, in an effort to find fun and happiness while she comes to terms with her troubled past. Now, this movie is available for streaming on HBO Max. Uh, there are a few technical things that drew us to this movie. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But first, I wanted to ask you, Will, what did you enjoy about this movie? Okay. So, from a technical standpoint, the fact that this was all shot in the Red Komodo was my main reason to watch it. <laughs> Um, I wanted to examine a camera I looked to purchase in the near future. And from what I saw and with an understanding of how Soderbergh filmed it, minimal lighting, gorilla status, I was pretty impressed and I will be sticking with my decision of getting this camera still. So, nice. so with that said, like the Maison scene, the directing, the editing all executed well, it, it it was said that the majority of the dialogue was improvised and the use of gear was pretty minimal. In fact, like apparently they shot the entire movie on the cruise ship in just over two weeks. And I thought, wow, that's impressive. That's really, that's awesome from a technical standpoint as well. Um, so when it comes to the story, there was a web of problems among each character. Like, uh, you know, with, with Alice, uh, Meryl Streep's character, bringing on her two friends to come with her on this cruise ship. Uh, because they're going to, they're heading to London because she won a an award for best author. Yeah, so, yeah, but they have all this baggage, right, between them. So that's the thing. So so um, Roberta and Susan are, are two of the, uh, Alice's closest friends, and you notice that with Roberta, there's something more tense with those two, and 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 you can tell like from the trailer too where. Alice says, hey, do you want to get a drink later? And Ruber says, no, I can't, and just walks away. Like, right off the bat, you're like, okay, there's a problem here. But the way how we're, we're, we're going through and understanding each character, I think, is through Alice's nephew, Tyler, like, played by Lucas Hedges. There's, like, a web of problems, but, like, we're watching it through his eyes as uh, uh, being unraveled for each situation because he's the one being pulled by each character uh, by like where it's Roberta saying, "Hey, how do you turn on this computer?" Blah blah blah. But also, hey, so what's like what's going on with your mother? What's the book about? Like you know, just things that they're trying to figure out about each other rather than talking to each other. Like they're best friends, but obviously there's a problem. So he's playing the middleman, and and going through all this. It really worked well, actually. I enjoyed watching that, and and mm-hmm. it kept the momentum going and, and keeping tabs on each character from a funny from in a funny way. Um, yeah. All the actors worked very well together. I enjoy their chemistry. Like for Alice, Susan, Roberta, they all have such interesting and quirky personalities. And you definitely feel the tension between Alice and Roberta, as I said earlier, in, in their tricky relationship. So I think that was awesome. Um, yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. Basically, Alice, uh, her fame comes from really uh, writing a book that she wrote a long time ago. And one of the main characters is apparently based on Roberta 
right? Supposedly, and Roberta, sure, yeah. played by Candace Bergen, thinks it kind of ruined her life and hurt her. Mm-hmm. So she has this bitterness towards Alice, which she has never come to terms with or even brought up to her. Because this right? idea of that's seeing of, the success of Alice's work, you know, because she wants a yeah. Pulitzer Prize as well, and then all of a sudden, yeah, it just takes a toll on on Roberta's life, and that's so true. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Are we dealing with money again? Um, Is it about fame again and money? Really? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what about you, though? Yeah. So. Uh, this movie for me was low key hilarious. I didn't think it would be as funny and it's not like in your face funny and none of the scenes actually play for laughs. Uh, but the witty dialogue along with Lucas Hedges's Hedges's am I saying that right? <laughs> along with the physical acting by Lucas Hedges, uh, it was really, really funny. Yes. Um, like we talked about he's the nephew that comes along for the cruise and uh, he has this really big heart and like has like, really is eager to please, but also is seeking like support and love from other people around him. So he innocently kind of goes along and is kind of like the, I guess the person you call on for whatever, right? So all of um, Alice's, yeah. Alice's uh, friends are always asking, Hey, can you do this? Can you do this? Uh, He has breakfast every morning with Alice. And then he develops a crush on Alice's uh, book agent played by Gemma Chan. Right. Yeah. So, he really is. Yeah, I didn't think of it, but you're right. He is kind of the the connection point for all these characters. Mm-hmm. And it, it works well. And I thought he was by far the best performance in the movie. He broke onto the scene in uh, Manchester by the Sea as well as a film called Lady Bird. And I really loved him here. I, I feel like the movie doesn't work without him, which is a little bit odd to say. You're thinking, oh, Meryl Streep, that's all you need. No, Lucas Hedges is literally the the lifeblood of this film. Yep, right? yep. Uh, and I love the self-contained indie nature of the film there's an earnestness to the filmmaking that i think comes across very easily you know it's not overly produced there weren't there weren't lights everywhere if for a few scenes i wondered if he used lights at all and i think some of those scenes could have used them definitely um so so yeah the the filmmaking the performances were really great and i was really entertained until about the final 20 minutes where Mm. the movie takes a turn and and it had me it left me wanting more let, let me just put it there. Well, that's a good thing, and, right? I kinda, uh, could be good. It could be bad. No, sure. not not in this way. I'm not going to spoil it. <laughs> yeah, but I know. I know. I was confused, mm-hmm. and then the end left me wanting more in a bad way. Lastly, I will say this: this film is a technical achievement in its own right, not on the level of Mank, I guess you could say, but just yeah, the way Soderbergh chooses to shoot his movies. His last. A couple of movies before this, he used an iPhone to shoot them. And, uh, you know, here he used a prototype camera um, that was basically in beta. He pretty much shot this with almost little to no crew. Um, I mean, rumor has it that for dolly shots, he was just being wheeled around in a wheelchair while he held the camera (laughs) in his hand. So it's just cool that an Academy Award, uh, that an Academy Award winning director is willing to go gorilla like this. And, you know, I think it comes across and it was, it was really fun. And honestly, that's like my, my most, uh, appreciated, um, thing, appreciative thing about a director like Soderbergh is that he takes big risks. Like this is a big, this was a big risk, a beta camera, minimal lighting, but he has an all-star studded cast and he's able to create, a, a still a, a pretty wonderful story so yeah, yeah i loved it yeah. but right. we go to our week but yes the, the but. but the big but right. so going back to the tactical aspect of it man those colors in the beginning of the film where alice and karen are having lunch were way vibrant and striking it was like super orange red 
and I don't know if he had any lights that that or if he was just using the lights that were in that you know restaurant or whatever. But I was like, this is hurting my eyes. <laughs> and this like just happens a couple of times as well on the cruise ship like not not too too much and i'm just like i i just i didn't understand why this was so i really didn't get it like like why why are you punching uh, it so hard you know it's that hdr quality of the camera i'm thinking (laughs) on our uh dolby vision tvs where the brights are a little bit brighter and, and there's so much of it it wasn't but yeah but during the day though when they would shoot during the day shots outside and and if it was like really bright outside, there's still there was still like a softness though to where it didn't like yeah. kill you, you know, like blow your eyes out. So I don't know, like it yeah. was such maybe you know. he might have been using like diffusion filters. I'm thinking to kind of soften the harsh light. Mm. I mean, I'm not quite sure though. Yeah. I mean, that's just a guess. But also, I yeah. think you mentioned it too. Maybe it was also another factor. Was you said that um, he didn't shoot raw, right? No, no, he didn't have. It wasn't available on the camera. Yeah, yet. so it was all. Uh, it was just ProRes. It, it, uh, it was just they recorded off of the sensor. It was the uh, the stream coming right out of the SDI. So Amazing. I think it was just straight 4K. Yes. Yeah. Wow. So that that was also impressive still for that kind of caliber of a film. Um, mm-hmm. In terms of the story now, the narrative, it the narrative felt more like pieces of the scene than an overall story, which is why I figured Tyler was like the device that held all the different storylines together, you know? So mm-hmm. I, I wasn't able to really kind of see it as one cohesive narrative. Um, and the film said, uh, as I said, the film was, was mostly improvised, which I think some of the dialogue also kind of dragged a little too long at times, right? When they would sit down, have their, have their conversations and what was going on. Like, I, th- I think that that could have been tightened up if they had at least, you know, a bit more structure to it. So th- that, those, those were, that was interesting to like learn that, wow, they really improvised <laughs> mostly this entire film that's crazy there was one scene in that i thought was hilarious which is when uh lucas hedges character is trying to talk to diane weist and he's like sitting there kind of oh, like, yeah. saying like yes. our, our generation <laughs> is in trouble and like how how do you feel when you look at us like, like the things then, like, that you went through kept... you know when you were younger right yeah. like you don't have a phone yeah. you know like and and, and <laughs> how, did you, so how did you good. how did you get around like do you think we've changed and and diane weiss's answer is simply no, <laughs> I think we're, <laughs> that was great. We're the same. I love that. Yeah. Scene. So yeah. that that was great. Yeah. Um, so talking about the plot twist, you said earlier. Yes, there. The plot twist was interesting at first. It, you know, it it deals with a male stranger that Tyler would see going into Alice's room every day on the cruise ship, finding out who he really was, and ultimately what happens uh, with him. All felt a bit forced. And, and and it left me with an ending that was kind of confusing too, like with what uh, Tyler um, voiceover narrates, uh, or or not Tyler what voiceover narrates, but what he remembers speaking with his um, with Alice in one conversation of a scene. Like it, it was just confusing. I don't know. It just really kind of confused me towards the end. And mm. and I think I do agree that I wish there was a little bit more for closure, better closure maybe. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, I wasn't a fan at all of the ending. The last 20 minutes, uh, I feel like the movie just really lost steam. And then there's that final scene where, well, I was hoping that I would get a little more than what I got, which is just basically back home. a close-up shot of a certain character. Yeah, yeah, a certain a close-up shot of a certain character back home, and they just realize something internally, and they smile, and it cuts to black, and I'm like, okay. 
Is that it? Is there like a post-credit scene that can help me more with what I should be thinking or and feeling, feeling yeah. or understanding? I agree. I agree. But uh, nope. Yeah. Nope. It was very abrupt. It, yep. it was very abrupt. Yep. And and yeah, you, I I will agree with you. I didn't know what to feel. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. A couple other things for me. Um, I mean, the troubled writer with writer's block is an old, tired trope. Mm. It's what gets us on the boat for this movie, though, and it leads to eventually a fun ride. Mm. Uh, For me, though, it's never the idea that you want to start with, but if Meryl Streep is playing that writer, it's probably going to be okay. But uh, this movie gets away with it, though, just barely. Is there a risk? Is that is the there a th- risk? Why why you know that you sh- they shouldn't? Is it t- is it too big of a risk to have that idea to start with? Well, it's funny. So they say people never want to watch a movie about people making movies, and mm. people rarely want to watch a movie about writers or about the creative process at all, right? But here we are reviewing two movies about writers. <laughs> yeah, right? That's true. Both with writer's block. <laughs> <laughs> so who knows? Maybe that saying isn't true at all. But uh, I mean, it's okay. Uh, the other thing that I want to say is, say is, is Meryl Streep kind of almost overacting in some of these scenes? It feels like she's really chewing the scenery. And like some sometimes there's a line that might take two or three seconds to deliver. And she takes about 10 seconds that, to deliver that's it. That's that improv, bro. Doing the Meryl Streep that's thing. That's that improv, bro. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you're probably right. I mean, she's a phenomenal actress. I, I love her to death. She's great. But uh, anyway, I, I just noticed that here. It may, you're, you're probably right. It was just the improv. Anyway. I have to add on, on, on to, what I liked, yeah. actually, was, man, I will say, the breakfast they ate every day, every time I looked at that plate, had me starving. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to eat everything that they <laughs> ate, looked, including those dinners. It looked dinners, so good. And I wanted to go on a cruise. <laughs> Right after I that. literally was telling myself that I was like, you know, I've never been on a cruise. This looks yeah. like a lot of fun. Yeah, I was like, like Hannah, have you been on a cruise? We should go yeah. on a cruise. Look at that. It's like free food. Oh, they have you can play blackjack on Look the at cruise. That. Yeah. Slots. Okay. Yeah. And they, they have dancing. They have little clubs. They have like masquerades. They, they got dancing. Yeah. They have, they have dancing. dancing. Yeah. They have a they have a gym. I can and go dancing. running. You know, you can go running with yeah. me, you know, whatever on the gym. Yeah. We can go swimming. Yeah. I, we should go on a cruise, bro. Let's go on a cruise. Yeah. It's just you just and me. You. <laughs> Yes, we won't. We won't tell our significant others. <laughs> yeah, there might be a magic mic show. Just oh, okay, no, no, I just lost. <laughs> yeah, more on that coming soon in our next segment. But anyway, okay, final review of the film. Yes. Will, what do you give this movie? I give this film three stars. Uh, it's great cast. It's a great technical achievement with minimal equipment, and it was enjoyable. You know, and then like mm-hmm. I agree, like with okay. you, that ending it just left me kind of. I don't know, like, just, I was like, what, I, it was Empty. just tasteless, kind of, you know? <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. I give this, I give it three and a half stars. I, oh. I had it at four. Wow. At, until the end. Oh. Yeah, it dropped a half star. Okay. Okay. And uh, I get it, this movie is about writers, and it's kind of slightly highbrow and a little artsy, but I just wish it gave me a little more, because up to that point, it wasn't feeling like it would be that kind of movie where the end is up for interpretation. It felt like there would be a natural conclusion to this film and it didn't provide that. So it almost was almost as if the movie switched genres at the end. Mm. That's what it was. Yeah. Got it. So yeah, I dropped it a half star for that to be honest, but uh, still three and a half out of five, really good score. So it is what it is. Yep. All right. That was our review of the films, Mink, as well as Let Them All Talk. Let Them All Talk is available on streaming. 
on HBO Max, and Mank is available for streaming on Netflix. We're going to take a short break, and we will come back uh, with our Soderbergh versus Fincher tournament bracket, and we will be rejoined by our friend John Park. Stay tuned. Stay tuned, people. You sound great. Yeah, right. What? You're telling me you weren't feeling it? You were in it. We don't need to, we don't need to put them all out. I know, but we have to take a film. hearing is deteriorating rapidly. We'll come back. Till then, Lou, we just keep going, okay? No. Lou, no. let's play tomorrow. Let's see what it's like, okay? I'm gonna be like a click track. You can play to me. You have to understand your first responsibility is to preserve the hearing you have. I can't hear you. Do you understand me? I can't. I'm deaf. I'm deaf. found a place. I think it's important that you stay here with us right now, Ruben. We're looking for a solution to, to this. Not this. I need you to wait for me, okay? You're it for me, Lou. You're my part. You're it for me, okay? You gotta wait for me. keep moving it can be a damn cruel place but those moments of stillness All right, we are back from break, and now it's time for our main event. The Steven Soderbergh versus David Fincher tournament bracket grudge match. And John is back, people. All right. So there are three of us, right? So there will be no ties, essentially. We talked about this a little bit earlier in the episode. We picked four Steven Soderbergh titles and four David Fincher titles, and then we mixed them up at random. There's no seeding for this tournament. We just made sure that completely at random, in the first round, it was a Soderbergh versus Fincher movie matchup. All right, and then in, you know, in future rounds, who knows, you know, how it's going to work out? It could be all Soderbergh in the second round. Who knows? It but. can be. Go, it can go crazy. It can go either way. People, yeah, hold on yep. to your butts. <laughs> so we'll see what happens. But first things first, I want to announce the players in the first round. In the first matchup, we have seven versus Traffic. In the next matchup, we have Aaron Brockovich versus The Social Network. In the next matchup, we have The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo versus Ocean's Eleven. And in our final matchup of the first round, we have Fight Club 
versus Will's already laughing. Magic Mike. <laughs> dun dun dun. Why? Why? More like a wah wah. Because <laughs> we know who's gonna win that one. That's just everyone knows. It's just right when you said Magic Mike, it's like, oh okay, my <laughs> club. Upset alert! Upset alert! Oh All right. So first things first. These two directors have actually quite a lot in common. Uh, first off, both of them shoot quite a bit with red cameras, right? Um, they both, I would say, like to operate outside of the studio system. Although Fincher, mm. although Fincher operates mm-hmm. within it, he acts like a rebel in the way that he shoots things. Whereas Soderbergh, on the other hand, he is literally outside he the system. Yeah, yep. he is using iPhones to shoot his stuff. Uh, prototype cameras right he likes to shoot by himself hell he operates his own camera on set right loves to do dollies in a wheelchair you know i mean dude that guy will do whatever he needs to do yeah so you know and fincher of course has expressed his disdain multiple times for how studios work how they're only in it to make money which is maybe a little hypocritical because they give him as much money he wants (laughs) to make his movies this way so he's he's basically an indie filmmaker with hundred million dollar budgets but hey, I mean, Such he's an artist. Such a contradiction, yeah. Yeah. It's an irony. Yeah, but they, I, I still appreciate them both because, I mean, there's not a soul on the planet that would call them a sellout. They are true to their craft. Um, they stick to the way that they believe films should be made. And uh, they both have a hell of a, they both have some great resumes to show for it. So Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I love that Fincher is like a, a music video director. Oh, yeah. yeah. Right? Suit and tie, I think he did. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah sure. Yeah, I think he did Madonna Vogue, if I'm not mistaken. He also did, uh, I think, Mirror with uh, JT, right? So mm-hmm. good. Yeah. A lot of the uh, 80s, great 80s artists. Yeah. So, now, on to the madness. Here we go. First matchup, Seven versus Traffic. Will, who you got? All right, so we got two films that deal with law enforcement, but very different issues, okay? <laughs> You know, both are so well done. Um, kind of refreshed myself yes, uh, last night, which was great. And I love them equally, but I have to go with Seven. The psychological mm. and mystery detective work in finding a sadistic serial killer always takes me to the edge of my seat, you know? Because when you look at Traffic, a film like Traffic, it's 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 a well-knitted story with several situations that, like, parallel each other. But a story that doesn't really preach about how bad drugs are. It's just the reality of it. And, and that was greatly done, too. But I, for me... Man, I love a good murder mystery. I love those types of things where you have to kind of like solve the puzzle kind of mm. uh, issue. So seven really stuck out to me. Okay. All right. Well, for me, this was the closest matchup in the first round. And up until today, I was going to pick traffic. But then I thought about it and I was like, okay, after seven came out, there was a whole bunch of other like cop murder mystery type movies like The Bone Collector. But None of them could hold a candle to seven. It's just, it was incredible. It was amazing. It was scary as hell. And the ending was the perfect ending. It wasn't a happy ending, but it was the right ending. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Whereas with Traffic, I mean, it was a great movie. And that movie also kicked off a stream of similar movies, right? That whole multiple storylines. Um, somehow intersecting in strange, ironic ways, yep. which uh, lends to, which provides like a deep kind of sort of, uh, I don't know what you would say, that provides like a greater meaning when you pull all the stories together. But I can't even say that Traffic is the best version of the movie, of that type of movie. It didn't even win Best Picture, whereas a movie like Crash a few years later did. So mm-hmm. that kind of is what put me over the edge, and that's why I'm picking Seven. 
What say you, John? Awesome. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think this was close for me at all. Um, I think, uh, well, first starting with Seven, it was my first recollection of what a thriller movie was. So, I mean, I like the horror genre. And so this blended horror with thriller, crime, uh, mystery uh, into something raw and gritty. So um, definitely not campy. So it changed the way I saw and enjoyed movies when I first saw it. Um, and uh, I think, yeah, Traffic, I admire the artistic idea of, of how he used different, uh, actually used different film for each storyline. Um, so you see the colors of the, the gritty yellows in Mexico, um, the, the, the blues to, to convey like very dark, somber moods uh, with uh, Michael Douglas's story. But, um, but it took me out of the film in times. So, um, I mean, the reason why I think Seven is far beyond um, better for me is the significance. There are, there are, I think, Myron, you're spot on. There are other films that are better with multiple storylines that weave together and has a better payoff for me, I think, than Traffic does. Um, and also the original idea of Seven. Um, I believe Traffic was a remake of a British TV show. Hmm. And seven That's was um, and Andrew Walker's original idea. Like I, I read into like that was his view of living in New York, which is really sad. Like he wrote it after he moved to New York, and he said he wouldn't have wrote the movie if he didn't live in New York for a while. Uh, <laughs> so hmm. it's like sad. Like look out his outlook at New York, but um, yeah, that was interesting to see. By the way, nice. regarding seven, one hell of an opening credit sequence, wasn't it? Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, that yeah. was actually yeah. Uh, when I was in art school, um, I noticed. The, the motion graphics uh, teacher referenced this the, the, the opening of this movie um, because it totally revolutionized like yeah. movie intros and it set the tone perfectly for you what for what you're about to see yeah it's like a foreshadowing right. of the yeah so uh it was a unanimous decision seven I was not expecting that but seven moves on to the second round all right our next matchup of the first round here Aaron Brockovich versus the social network let's start with you John I thoroughly enjoyed Aaron Brockovich. I think Julia Roberts, um, that was one of my favorite performances of her in her entire career. And I think that's, that's saying something because her career is so massive. Um, but she definitely carried the film. It was heartwarming. Um, you cared for her character. And uh, you actually actually cared for other people's character even more than you yeah. cared for her character. Aaron Eckhart was great in yeah. that as well. Um, mm -hmm. But Social Network, I mean, that's, that's the perfect film for me almost like that was like in your guys rating 4.9999 for me um so it's it's just wasn't close the the score changed my life um that introduced uh trent reznor and yeah Lucas Ross yeah to us. yeah um, yeah yeah I, I think it just just plainly it's just perfect film yeah I have to agree with you, John. I mean, I loved Aaron Brockovich. This was that crazy year where Soderbergh was nominated for Best Director twice, right in the in the same calendar year for Aaron Brockovich and for Traffic. He he won for Traffic, right? Um, but I mean, honestly, if you compare this to The Social Network, that movie actually takes on more meaning as time passes because of the way that we are so isolated today. Um, part of, partially due to the, pan, to the pandemic, but for other reasons as well. Hmm. It's also technically a perfect movie, and it's a little bit haunting the the deeper things that it is implying about uh, the human condition. So I have to go with the social network hands down. And you know, I think I said this earlier. It's my favorite film uh, of the 2010s. So easy yeah. pick for me. Um, over to you, Will. What do you say? 
you uh, matched up two films based on true stories. And I thought that was interesting. At random. It was random. I didn't do this. Yeah. Or, yeah, well, okay. So at random, the (laughs) fact that this happened at random, I've totally forgot. I'm sorry. Yes, you did do it at random. It's just, actually, it was just was very funny how that, those two ended up that way. Both well-executed films. Um, And from a narrative standpoint, I think both did amazing. But from a technical standpoint, um, I, I have to give it to Fincher with The Social Network. And, oh, well, to also add on to the narrative, I think that it's, a lot more relatable, obviously, to obviously Facebook, in comparison to Aaron Brockovich uh, being a you know uh, a, a ambitious, you know, uh, hopeful lawyer in the sense, uh, and, and uh, trying to solve a specific case in that in, in what the, what was going on back then. But the thing is, is that I, the Social Network wins this one, but I wonder how with technology, how much technology has advanced. From the year Brockfish was shot, which is back in 2000, like what it would look like if shot a decade later. This is a 10-year gap. So, well, yeah. I don't think I'll, it would look different at all because, I mean, Soderbergh is, he's probably not going to win any awards and his movies probably aren't for its technical achievements, I would have mm-hmm. to say. I mean, this mm-hmm. is a guy that likes to just handle the camera himself and do dolly shots while sitting in a wheelchair, you know? So, sure, I, I think sure, for sure. him, he's a very old school filmmaker and if you take the indie style that he shoots in away from him i feel like it's no longer a soderbergh type film you know mm. yeah i wonder if he would have shot it, this with a red i'm just kidding <laughs> <laughs> it's Probably interesting because uh i mean soderbergh has movies like contagion where i, I actually thoroughly was more engrossed in uh, which i feel like it has a similar um vibe like harrowing vibe as the social network but the the, the subject matter is completely different but um yeah, like Brockovich, I don't think he would have t- turned that tone into something like Contagion or Social Network because the story, it just doesn't lend itself to that. So I actually think he would have shot it. There, It would have been a very similar movie um, mm. shot now by him. Mm. Nice, nice. Cool. So, All right, so we have another, <laughs> yep, another unanimous decision. I have a feeling it might be like that across the board in the first round. Hopefully there'll be some contention here because we have, we both know that's when it gets fun. Um, <laughs> next matchup here, and by the way, s- some of these movies, I mean, there are pro- probably some listeners that are like, "Wait, that's not even Fincher's top four or Soderbergh's top four. Sorry, like we just there was a, there was a movie in here. I'm sure that Will's like, "What the hell is that doing here?" <laughs> but anyway, we'll get to that. In a You've heard it here first, uh, people. Sorry from my end. All right into the next first round matchup the girl with the dragon tattoo versus oceans 11 Mm. go ahead will this is a tough one you have a murder mystery from the girl with the dragon tattoo versus a heist film from oceans 11 i really loved the cinematography in the girl with the dragon tattoo it was just so beautifully done i remember i think you and i talked about it uh myron where i showed you the like the trailer that that one long shot on the road going to the house in the winter's day and it was like that was the entire trailer but it was so seamless so beautiful colors were like haunting and i'm just like what the heck and i think they did a great job adapting it from the original uh uh German version, I believe. But the only thing is that it is a slower paced film than Ocean's Eleven, you know? 
because if I wanted to watch a film over and over again for pure enjoyment to really be like, okay, yes, I can really get into this. I can be hyped for it. I can, I can look at it not so much as a piece where as a, as a videographer, filmmaker and, and, and try to study it, I can literally actually enjoy it as a regular moviegoer. It, it would have to be Ocean's Eleven because <laughs> you just got yeah. a powerhouse cast you know, it's a classic of the Rat Pack. You know, like the uh, back in the days and whatnot, and and uh, the music, the the just the whole vibe. It, it's just a fun, enjoying, um, and and such a great film to watch. So, Ocean's Eleven. As much as I love the artistry and the beauty of the way the dragon, a uh, girl with the dragon tattoo was shot. So, yeah, yeah, I have to agree. Um... What it comes down to with this choice is replay value. The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo is once again a technically perfect film that's haunting with great performances, extremely well shot, well acted, well directed, and it has a satisfying uh, conclusion. But Ocean's Eleven is just pure replay value. Like I could watch that over and over and over again, and I've probably seen it at least 100 times. And there are just certain little things in the movie that just stay in your head. Like when you are playing poker and you like lay your hand out and you see all reds, everyone knows where that's from, right? And then just like all these little things, like my name is Lyman Zerga, all these little things that just kind of stay in your head. It's such a good movie. And... It's pure popcorn. I would say it's probably the least indie, most mainstream version of, or most in- mainstream of all of Soderbergh's movies, but it's just so much fun. Oh, so yeah. I have to go with Ocean's Eleven, even though I will have to say The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo is the more technically perfect movie. Yeah, this one, I'm still like struggling actually, um, honestly, because I loved The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Um, I remember uh, having a little argument about about it with my wife because <laughs> she was um she just like plain straight out hated it and i was trying to defend it and, um <laughs> it was it was just thrilling uh i, I actually is one of the most um with the best i think um cinematography of all the fincher movies to me um i think it was just so beautiful like the shots i just i the, his other movies i was like okay that's how he shot that that like he did this but with this movie, I was just like, just drawn in. I was like, no way I could have ever dreamed somebody thinking this. So it's like, I was like in his head, like he dreamt of it and then he, he brought it to life. Um, I mean, I agree with everything you guys said about Ocean's Eleven, perfect heist comedy. There's 11 plus characters you manage to care for, all of them. Um, it's probably top 10, if not top five, most enjoyable um, moments, movie theater moments of, of my life um, in terms of comedy and fun movie going um yeah i i'll give it to oceans 11 just just because that oh, i think the, the, the i was fault, so thinking <laughs> the the fault was the girl with dragon tattoo i think was the adaptation um i think when i talked to people who didn't um take a liking to it i think the book was maybe too big for a film um mm. versus um his like other movies i think uh just it just the 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 in, intrigue the little all the little things in the 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 you know the girl series in those books um i think that's why maybe it didn't get also get as public acclaim because it was just so hard to wrap everything around um even with uh, fincher's skills um so yeah it was hard i was gonna okay. say if he was gonna choose uh the girl with the dragon tattoo john i was gonna be like wow 
what an artist an artist would choose that <laughs> film i mean i mean yeah i mean that's i i definitely approached this this whole thing with um kind of just the sake of argument because like yeah if if because if i had the bias of yeah it was more enjoyable yeah i had more fun but i also as an artist i had i, I had more fun watching go too than i could watching mm. oceans 11 because i knew going into it i'm not going to watch oceans 11 for um, artistic view um, so they, they, they hit, you know, top ranks for both parts when it adds it in terms of going to see it. So I heard, I heard a story about the girl with the dragon tattoo. Um, one of the things we talked about is Fincher has to do everything his way. And yeah, we all know that Sony financed the film, right? And Sony apparently really wanted Elizabeth Salander to use Sony computers, right? <laughs> and then Fincher's like, no, 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 F that. She's, she's, she's using Apple. I, I don't care what you guys want. I, this isn't about product placement yes it, like, i know it's true right oh, okay okay fine <laughs> <laughs> yeah pretty much any studio gives him whatever creative right that creative freedom that he wants and i think he's a stickler for that after his experience on alien 3 which is apparently the worst experience like any filmmaker has ever had which is kind of what he makes it sound like anyway last uh matchup of the first round fight club uh, versus magic mike i'll go ooh, ahead and do this one first okay now i liked magic mike are you uh, kidding I, me? What? Yeah, I thought it was low key hilarious. What I thought Matthew fuck? McConaughey just owned that movie. Oh, um, it, it got a little emo towards the end, um, but overall, yeah, I, I loved it. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Did um, you enjoy McConaughey's bum? Is that why? I mean, did you really no, like I, I just, him in the thong? I, I felt like he was just messing around the entire time. All, all these right, guys were like, right, I cannot right. believe they're letting us make a movie like this. And they're just like laughing their way to the bank. So I, I, I had fun in it. But I, I'm going to have to go with Fight Club, right? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> Fight Club is the most anti-studio studio movie I think I've ever seen. It's like how the hell did they make this movie? Like, no, it's amazing. I dude, love it. Dude, Chuck Palahniuk is freaking a genius writer, yeah, No, man. he's, yeah, he, he's a genius. But how do you pitch a movie like this, right? And it's so, like, off the top, demented, and just messed up. <laughs> I, but I, in I all the right it's, ways. It's so crazy, but I so freaking love it. Yes. It, it's it's so good, right? Strangely enough, I could almost see a, a mashup between Magic Mike and Fight Club. Sure. We have, we have uh, strippers going insane, some of which are imaginary characters. Are you pitching and this they, right they, now? They start going crazy. Yeah. I could see a mashup here. But Stripper anyway. Club. Yeah. Oh Fight Club. Oh, my God. Oh, man. Um, again. Oh, man. What? <laughs> what? What do you mean? Oh, man. Wait. I love Magic Mike. I thought it what? was so fun. Um I, it was. It really was. It really was. I think uh, Channing Tatum was very convincing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was a simple story, a simple man with simple ambitions. Um, and Soderbergh, he, I mean, I, I think he didn't take it too seriously. Like he, he knew what he was doing. He knew. I think he was very self-aware that you know, male, this is a movie about male strippers. Um, and yeah, I just I just thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, I actually liked the kind of the emo side he threw in the end. Um, because that, that totally reconnects the movie, um, kind of brings it back to uh, the story about the characters, um, where you have this like almost laughable but kind of taboo subject. Um, and I mean, with Fight Club, yeah, I mean, who can't um, who can argue like it's it's artistic vision, um, it's great acting. Uh, not to say that Magic Mike didn't have great acting, 
um, which I think it really kind of uh, actually gave kind of substance, make Channing Tatum kind of res- like really respected um, after that. Uh, but you had, I mean, you had prime Edward Norton and one of Brad Pitt's best performances. I think that kind of just gives it to Fight Club for me. Okay, we'll, let me tell right, you. Magic Mike. We'll pick Magic Mike, everybody. <laughs> Agreed. I'll tell you everything that was wrong with Magic Mike. If you picked Magic uh, Fight Club, <clears throat> I was going to pick Magic Mike. <laughs> no, you weren't. No, you were not. You know, don't lie to yourself like that. That's terrible. No, literally. I watched this last night, and I was so mad I watched this <laughs> Magic Mike last <laughs> night. I mean, look, Matthew McConaughey, yes, he did a great performance. Channing Tatum, you know, he, he was fine. You know, I mean, I think I, I don't... Was he fine, or was he just fine? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I know you think of him as fine, Myron. No, I mean, looking at looking at Channing Tatum in this film, I, I, okay, Alex uh, Pettifer, who plays Adam, the, the brother, I'm like... Guy, you literally are just acting exactly like an I am number four. Like his character was so just the same. And I'm like, what am I watching here? Like, and this kid who's supposed to have like no ambition and like he's a wash up, but like it was just, but he has this like this monotone. Like, I don't know, he didn't carry that character for me at all in any way that makes me believe that he was a very like messed up or lazy or whatever kind of um, brother. And then like Cody Horn who plays Brooke, the sister literally is exact same monotone and just like the, I don't know, the chemistry between her and Channing Tatum. I was like, I, it just seems so disconnected for me. Like I feel like there's no chemistry at all. It was just, to me, it was like a weak typical story and it was just so bland to watch. I mean, there are funny moments, but like maybe, if it was a short film, it would have been great. But literally, like as a whole, it was. It was. I was just like, okay, I, I think I'm done with this because all I'm seeing literally are just men's butts right now, <laughs> constantly just being stripped. Hey, but McConaughey was hilarious. Come on, he, he was no, no. awesome. If anything, if man, if if it was if it was just Matthew McConaughey really like carrying this film, yeah, I think I think that it would maybe actually done much better. I think Matthew McConaughey could have just carried this entire film than the rest of the cast. Really, that me, I'm being harsh, but seriously, like when you when you put it up against Fight Club, such a like you said, Myron, a twisted, holy crap, what the heck, mind f, you know, especially towards the end of how a great story uh, unfolds and and is told. There's no comparison and. Dude, Edward Norton, Brad Pitt, what a duo, dude. What a freaking duo to go through uh, to, to, to make that story come alive, you know? I think you're projecting. I think you're projecting expectations. I think you... Um, you, you, you I had you no expectations of Magic Mike. Yeah, <laughs> I had no Tatum's acting. Um, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe the stripper alive. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's his life, right? He was a male stripper. This yeah. is based on his life. He yeah. knew oh. that, right, Will? Yeah, no, no, but like, wait, he in real life? Yeah, yeah he was a male life. stripper in real life. real life. I did not know that. But yeah. the fact that he was a male stripper in this film, but not letting it represent his identity because he's like, I want to be a custom. I want to make concept. tables. I want to be yeah. a custom concept <laughs> furniture builder. And I'm like, great, dude. <laughs> Hey, so Jesus you're basically trying to... Hey, he's a simple man with simple ambitions. <laughs> exactly. like so you're, trying to, you're trying to basically represent women strippers who are like saying, this is just a job to pay the bills. I really want to be a doctor. Like, okay, we've heard that story before, but we're not looking at it on the male's yeah. end. So, yeah. 
No, we're not gonna go with that. All right. <laughs> definitely the place that they danced at, you know, it's called Exquisite. This film was definitely not exquisite for me. So right, I'm cutting that line. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was bad. All right. Sorry, Myron, I'm trying to I'm trying to get to your level. <laughs> <laughs> My level of cheesiness. All right. Round two, guys. All right. Oh so it looks like Soldierberg has just one dog left in the fight here. We have seven versus the social network. And in the other semifinal, we have Fight Club versus Ocean's Eleven. So, first matchup here, we have, like I said, Social Network versus Seven. I'll go ahead and take this one first. Um, as great as Seven was, I think you, everyone knows how much I love the Social Network. I've talked about it way too many times during the course of this first year of the podcast. So, I'm going to have to go with the Social Network. Uh, Fincher versus Fincher. Fincher wins. Because I was leaning more towards Seven, but only purely on the sense of how it entertained me right but if i'm going to look at also you know more of the tentacle and the features and just the way how you know this film is represented yes the social network actually encompassed the entertainment plus so much more and the technical aspects the uh the social like this the the kind of like the society aspect of like how it is still applied in today's day and age and whatnot. So, and also the dialogue of Sorkin's writing versus and with with Finch's direction. Yeah, it, it was definitely a very very well put together film for sure. Over seven. So yeah, I'll give the Social Network too. Uh, this is tough. This is a heart versus mind for me um, mm, because that's a good obviously analogy. I said uh, seven holds a special place in terms of film um, emotional attachment. Uh, I think Social Network technically from script to acting to direction uh, is just one of the best in history, but I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm truly going off the top cuff because I didn't like, you know, decide yet. I wanted to hear what you guys have to say as well. I, this is tough. I'm going to go with the social network. Because I think heart, overall, I think it is, I mean, again, just, apples and apples but if it's not it's for the sake of argument i think it is a better overall film i think he's perfected his craft venture did um by this time when he made the social network and i think it just it, it really shows um all throughout i think people can nitpick the seven um but yeah there it is yeah. all right cool it's unanimous the social network moves on to the finals. And for our other semifinal match, we have Ocean's Eleven versus Fight Club. Another tough one here. I'll go ahead and go first. <sighs> I, I, I'm going to have yeah. to go with uh, Ocean's Eleven. Um, it's it's a popcorn flick, and it and it kind of uh, violates my uh, my uh, uppity, you know, uh, independent filmmaker sensibilities, right? But it's just so damn fun, you know. Mm, mm-hmm. So I'm I'm gonna just uh you know in, embrace the popcorn flick here, and say Ocean's Eleven steals it <laughs> from Fight Club. Wow, you should delete that. <laughs> <laughs> I probably should. <laughs> All right, John, what do you think? I I actually think uh, Ocean's Eleven uh, wins it, uh, going running away with it. Um, I. I didn't um, say in the in the first round, but uh, the first watch uh, act- of Fight Club, I wasn't too fond of it. Um, I just didn't care too much about the characters. I think the acting was great, but 
I don't know the the, the story. I didn't truly follow. I I, I was realizing it, it was artistic vision and everything while watching it, but after the um, I came out of the theaters, it just didn't hit a tone where I was like, man, I I really love this film. But um, I mean, I think this is where like this is where acting. Uh, I think Brad Pitt really uh, found a spot um, with his like quirky quirky charm lane that he shines. Um, I think he found it actually after Seven uh, Twelve Monkeys, when he made that movie. Um, he truly found that lane, like kind of this this comedic, quirky vibe. I think he used part of that in Fight Club, um, and I think that's what kind of I really liked about Fight Club. I think that's his act. His character actually um, matched Norton's, you know, true dramatic acting, to make it to make it really shine for me. But like you said, I, I don't know like if if it's just that you know like fun going movie going thing of Ocean's Eleven that really takes it. But it I think it, even in that aspect, like this is one of the best versions of of that like whatever that is. Um, so like it's almost like if Social Network is like a perfect film in all those technical aspects, technically with comedy and fun going movie, Ocean's Eleven is like perfect. I'm going with my gut, and I'm going with Fight Club actually. This isn't a film that's everyone's cup of tea, but I can literally sit there with, you know, a large, you know, uh, pot of popcorn and enjoy it and watch it and get something out of it in terms of from an artistic standpoint, but also uh, find entertainment in watching it because how just much of a mind F this is. <laughs> All right. Cool. I, does that make me sadistic? I'm sorry. Yeah. No, no, no. Oh, no. oh yeah. <laughs> I, I just decided that we should do something right now just to see the fun of it because I think this is an intriguing matchup. Rather than go to the finals, I want to go into a consolation bracket. This Ooh. is for uh, third place, right? If you put seven against Fight Club, who wins? Fudge. That's a tough one. Will, what do you think? Oh, man. Freck. That ending in seven messed me up. But the ending in Fight Club, like, really shocked me. Like, it was a, like, wow, that's a really great twist. Freck! Uh, Go with your heart. I know, right? You know, I have to go with Fight Club because I, seven, Oof. it was, it, honestly, I, I couldn't handle just how sad it was. I, I, and that, and I mean, every, everything aside from great stories, uh, great technical uh, achievements, uh, just just great acting. All those are set aside. Now it's coming straight purely to how I, how this film really impacted me. Seven, it just has an ending where I'm just like, I, I just get sad, and, and, and it's just I, I don't like being sad like that. It's just. Really I think that's sad. the power of it. I think that's the power of it. A lot of these, they they, oh, yeah. they went with a lot of different actors to um, play the parts, and a lot of them turned it down because. They felt like it was too sad. It was too dark for them. Uh, but I think that's where, like, they regretted it. All of them said they regretted it because it was so powerful. Um, but I'm going to go with Magic Mike. With <laughs> <laughs> Magic Mike, come on. Uh, one time for Tatum. Uh, All right, John, who do you pick? Uh, Fight Club uh, or it's, Seven? It's Seven running away. Um, I think it's... I, I honestly think, like, I agree with... The artistic vision again like fight club um it's shocking um honestly it wasn't shocking for me it was like i was like huh it's different but 
the power of seven, I think it still holds up today um, because it's such a universal message. Um, and it's it's hard for a lot of people to to watch, but I feel like it's one of the movies where like, I will tell everybody to watch, like this is one movie you should watch. Um, if it's like 10 movies you watch in your lifetime, I think this is one of the movies um, because it's such a, uh, I don't know, eye-opening, I dare to say. Um, and on top of all the technical stuff, I think um, you guys always talk about like, does it hold up today um, in your podcast? And I think it, it, it holds up and even more today. Hmm. Yeah, okay. just to be reminded how messed up we really are, you know, seven deadly sins, huh? What do we struggle with? Yeah. Is that what you're trying yeah. to say? Is that what you're trying to bring out in us? <laughs> I'm perfect. Right. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> well, another I'm thing sorry, I want to bring about with seven, I know I have like I have like tons of stuff to talk about seven, but like Pitt's acting, Pitt's acting, I think some may say it's over the top or just bad, but I think his character was like exactly how it was written and portrayed is what I believe. And I noticed it. What's in, in the it, box? What's in the <laughs> yeah, box? And he's, he's like so angry all the time. He's like this young kid. He's like angry sometimes. He's in like this college guy who's naive. But I think that's no, he's actually hyped, how you know? it was. Yeah. yeah, he's actually, you know, he's like this arrogant guy. Um, but I noticed it in his consistency throughout the whole movie. He acts the same way. So it's not like you can't, I don't think you can really say it was bad acting. He was playing the part of an arrogant guy so sure of himself. And he was contrasted perfectly with like Somerset's um, wise mannered part so well. So I think mm. it's, yeah, it really Dude. shines. Yeah. Right. Dude, no, the part that I just got really uncomfortable though, every time I watched it is when Morgan Freeman's like, like, give me the gun. If you kill him, <laughs> wait, wait, if you kill him, he wins. But the part where you see Brad Pitt. <laughs> no, 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 no. Go, no. go back. <laughs> Everyone, Will just did a Morgan Freeman impression. Can you say, give me the gun again? Do it again. Give me the gun. <laughs> if you shoot him, he wins. Is this creepy, Morgan? <laughs> but the part right when you see it's a close-up shot of Brad Pitt's face looking away with the gun pointing, and then all of a sudden fisting it really tightly and relaxing, and then fisting it he's tightly. He's fisting the like, gun. <laughs> like well, well, he's he's gripping the gun very yeah. tightly. Looks. And then relaxes, looks again, like he's battling with wrath, you know? And I thought that was so uncomfortable because I think in some point in anyone's life, we've had that moment. Maybe not so much, obviously, in that extreme, whether it is in the real, like in real life, but in your head, you know, in your head, when you really struggle with something to, 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 with, to suppress something that you know you shouldn't do, man, I think Brad Pitt really emphasized it very well. And I just was like, it made me feel so uncomfortable, you know? Hmm. And I kept hearing Morgan Freeman's voice is like God's voice, you know, you know, say, give me the gun, say (laughs) it again. If you, if you kill him. He will win. <laughs> Great. I'm just going to hear Will as Morgan Freeman every time I pray to God. <laughs> you, you went a little Borat at the end there. <laughs> if you kill him, he'll win. Anyway, I have the final decision here, and I will have to say Fight Club just barely Ooh! by a nose. Simply because both of these movies, I'm like, I can't believe they're letting him make this. But um, Fight Club, to me, it makes a stand for uh, artistic freedom on a on a big large level right and um just to see what how they made this movie what he got away with as a director 
and how these actors bought in and that just this journey you're on, it was completely unpredictable. And this movie really doesn't have a genre. It's a lot of things and it's none of those things. It's a unicorn of a movie that I've never seen before. And I don't know if I'll ever see anything like it again. Whereas seven people were like, okay, we're going to make another seven. People don't even know what it means to try to even make another Fight Club because they don't know what Fight Club is. Mm. Right? Mm. So it's it's weird. I don't think there's going to be another film like this. I mean, I know they made Choke. It wasn't that well received. And Fincher didn't do it. So it didn't have that impact. So I, I will have to say Fight Club here. Oh, man. I, I mean, I'm going to... Uh, I would say, like, I think when Fincher made Fight Club, people, studios trusted him. I think when they were trying to make Seven, it was thrown... The script was thrown around everywhere. Like, nobody wanted to make it because it was so dark. And, and then Fincher made it, and then it became, you know, his, his, his calling card. So I think in that sense, yeah, like, I don't know. It, it's almost... It's almost like yeah, he, he it was hard to make seven as well, um, yeah. but yeah, I mean yeah, that's true. Fight Club's amazing. Uh, all right, I will give you guys that. I will give you that, John. Um, in our final, we have Ocean's Eleven versus The Social Network. What say you, Will? Hmm. I feel like The Social Network is gonna win this one because I will say with The Social Network too. It's not only something I can sit down and take notes on in terms of gaining inspiration, uh, finding uh, ideas, but it was entertaining as well. It was very entertaining. It is, uh, I think, a film also that that you can watch with with friends and family, you know, Um, and it is very relatable in today's day and age as well. Um, so okay. with that said, social network. All right. Now I know what movie I'm going to pick. So to add some extra drama, I want, I'm wondering if John might offer a dissenting opinion. So let me ask you, John, what yes. do you pick? Ocean's 11 or the social network? Yes, it is dissenting opinion. I'm going to go with Ocean's 11 because Ooh, okay. here's where, here's what I was thinking. <laughs> I rank, where would I put these two movies in my, all my all time favorites? list i i and why i have oceans 11 higher is there's other great movies and like i said oceans 11 i think it maybe it, it you know comedy it, it gets a bad rep and you like oh like artistic um, like dialogue acting movies films drama films um over comedy movies but this is i think i think it has to be in, in just as much of a pillar um, in terms of movie rating as the others. So when it comes to that and artistically, uh, technically it's, it's, it's a perfect comedy heist movie. Um, so because of that, I think I have it higher than the social network. Um, I mean, head to head. Yeah. I, I think they're both checks every single box acting art, artistry, directing. Um, yeah. I think it's that. Okay. All Mm. right. So that is our winner, ladies and gentlemen. We have the social network beating out Ocean's Eleven by a nose. If you think about it with this list, I think it was always going to be Ocean's Eleven versus the social network if the bracket was set up correctly. Mm. So I'm glad we we were able to talk through this. I had a lot of fun. I don't know about you guys. 
But uh, John, thank you for joining us. I'm sure it won't be the last time. Woo. We'll probably ask you to come on sometime pretty soon. Uh, thank you guys. That was our episode me. today. Of course. Heck yeah. Thank you for coming on. We will be back next week with a review of the films The Sound of Metal as well as the film Songbird. And then shortly after that, we will be going through our top five list of 2021's. Sorry, back up. All right, that was our episode. We will be back next week with a review of the films The Sound of Metal and Songbird. And in that same episode, Will and I will be going through our top five list of 2021 up-and-comers. So we'll see you next week. Bye.